On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, full lineup today, we're going to be chatting about the youthful offenders laws in this country, specifically in regards to the Devin Selvey killing that we had here in Hamilton the other day. A lot of people saying this person, the 14-year-old, should be charged as an adult. What are the laws? Why don't we do that? And should we be doing that? We'll talk to a lawyer about that one. We're going to be chatting about the CBC suing the Conservative Party. Did you hear about this? Well, we're talking to a law professor about this as well who says this is a very weak case. He'll be talking about it. So why would the CBC do this in the middle of an election and essentially turn what could be or should be a legal matter into something that is inextricably now political and makes them look biased? It doesn't make any sense. We'll talk about that one. We will chat with the Incredible Hulk himself. Lou Ferrigno is going to be in town in Hamilton this weekend for Comic-Con here in Hamilton. Lou Ferrigno joins us. And the XFL draft was held, or part of it was held. How is this going to affect the CFL when a bunch of the players that you would think would be CFL targets are now potentially being signed by the XFL? We'll talk with Rick Zamperin. Stay tuned. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You probably saw the coverage or read the coverage or heard the coverage from the weekend uh, with the funeral of Devin Selvey. This is the young man who everybody knows about now in Hamilton who was stabbed to death outside Sir Winston Churchill Secondary School last week. Uh, tragic story. And I... I the the comments that have been coming out, there's a lot of, I mean, obviously people have had a lot of things to talk about. Bullying is a big part of the story now and the tragedy of this. But there is a third line of comments that I've been hearing an awful lot about over the days since this happened. And it's frustration that people seem to have that the 14-year-old accused, who police say was the one who did the stabbing, that's the police saying that, uh, that he is charged and will be tried, apparently, as a youth. And a lot of people saying, why? Like, what? we know we have the the act, the, the law that says you're charged as a youth, but really, like, we have the, the ability to charge someone as an adult. Why don't we do it in certain cases? And it, it reiterates, a, we, you hear this all the time, I hear it all the time. It's a frustration that a lot of people seem to have around youth and crime and whether this act is working, whether this act is always appropriate. I want to bring in someone who we love to talk about when we need to talk about the law. Her name is Jamie Stevenson. She's a local lawyer. She's a past president of the Hamilton Criminal Lawyers Association. She joins us now. Jamie, thanks for doing this today. Hi, Scott. Nice to talk to you again. I enjoy it, as you said. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious, but I'm going to ask you for a little background anyway about why we have different rules in the law for adults and for children. Absolutely. And we all know the Youth Criminal Justice Act applies uh, to anyone under the age of 18. And the approach that the Youth Criminal Justice Act takes overall is an approach to rehabilitation. So the approach in terms of if somebody goes to trial isn't that much different. It's still going to have the same elements of the offense that have to be proven. The charges in and of themselves don't differ. It's just more of the approach as to sentencing once the matter is concluded and even the approach at the bail stage that are different. And the hope is, of course, to encourage the youth to change their lives as opposed to just sending them to jail, locking them up and throwing away the key. So we don't know what's going to happen in this, uh, but let's just jump ahead a few steps or 40 steps here and say there is a conviction. We don't know. There may, there may not be. But let's say there was a conviction in this case. What would the difference be 
in a first-degree murder conviction for someone who is under 18 versus someone who's over 18, as far as what yeah. happens to them? Absolutely. Well, as we know, uh, being charged as an adult and being convicted as an adult, you're going away for life for 25 years. A youth uh, approach, again, is different because the focus is on rehabilitation as opposed to locking someone up for 25 years and saying, well, you're not getting out for a really long time. It doesn't mean that youth aren't eligible for custody. There are youth custodial facilities. They're different in the, in the way that they're run. But again, they're still a custodial facility. They're, they're still removed from the community. Again, the focus is on continuing education, on any rehabilitation that that youth may need. We don't know what the issues of these particular this particular youth may or may not be. And so the focus is to get him back to the community and become a productive member of the community in the, in the future as opposed to just saying, well, your life is over because this is the act you committed. How long has this been? Have We, we haven't always had, I know it was the Young Offenders Act before this, but how, how long have we had something like this? Does it go way, way, way back or is it a relatively new thing? It goes back quite some time and I should have looked up the exact date that it was enacted, but uh, Certainly, it's been around for the last 15 years, and so it's not something that's new. This is not a new approach to dealing with youth, but it is something that has been the focus. Again, as we get, unfortunately, as we get into offenders that are getting older and older and older, especially repeat offenders, that then the approach is, okay, we need to separate them from society and rehabilitation isn't working. But we like to think and we like to hope, even a, even we call it, uh, use a term called the youthful first-time offender, even those individuals who are technically adults but are very young, we still want to approach that with the hope that an alternative to incarceration is going to better meet the ends of justice in the future and in the present because, again, we're going to hopefully be able to change whatever brought that person into the criminal justice system. Let's hope we can change that. Let's hope we can impact their lives. And let's hope that we can better make them a better member of our community as opposed to just saying, we give up. We can't do this. There was a time, though, when kids would have been tried the same as adults, correct? It hasn't always been the case. That's correct, and that's and it's it's still possible under the right circumstances, and that may be something that the Crown uh, approaches and decides in this particular case, but this young person is uh, 14. It's not as though he's 17 or almost 18. Unfortunately, his brother is 18, so he'll be tried as an adult, even though he's pretty much a youth as well. I mean, there's not much of a difference between a 17-and-a-half-year-old and an 18-year-old. So again, some might say, well, that's unfortunate that he just happened to be 18 because now he's going to the adult institution. And I may be incorrect, but from what I've learned from the papers, neither one of these young boys have criminal records. So here they are, brothers going, committed, allegedly committed the same offense. And here one goes to the detention center to await disposition and the other goes to a youth facility where he'll have better access to resources uh, in order to support him while he's in there. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're talking with Jamie Stevenson, the past president of the Hamilton Criminal Lawyers Association, about the situation with the killing of Devin Selvey. Uh, And we have an 18-year-old and a 14-year-old who are charged. One will be seemingly, and we haven't heard anything to the contrary, one will be tried as an adult, one will be tried as a youth, and there's a big, big difference. And just before the break, Jamie, you were saying, you know, that it may be bad luck for the 18-year-old that he is now turned 18 if he'd been 17, 
probably would have been a better situation for him. And, you know, I mean, people are probably blanching at that when they hear it saying, oh, we don't want better situations. But it does seem rather arbitrary because I know 13-year-olds, some, who are more mature than some 20-year-olds. And just to put a number beside it, it's, it almost doesn't make sense in some ways. It's true. And that's sort of the point that I'm making. And obviously, I make my assertions uh, as a defense lawyer. And I see the same thing. I see youth that come into my office that are incredibly immature and they're 17, almost 18 years of age. And then I see others, like you said. Uh, I wanted to answer your question from earlier and I did some research on the break and uh, I had the number 15 in my head. 15 years has been in place. It's 16 years. It was April 1st, 2003 that the Youth Criminal Justice Act came into effect. And uh, also this youth, if the youth that is 14, if he's convicted of first-degree murder, he could be looking up to 10 years in a custodial facility, six of it actually being served continuously in a custodial facility. So not an individual, even as a youth, who's going to just be getting a slap on the wrist. So it's it's not that the Youth Criminal Justice Act says, well, you're a youth, so that's okay. We're just going to pat your head and hope you'll do better next time. There are still custodial sentences that do along with violent offenses and or repetitive offenses if a, an individual is coming a youth is coming before the court who's repeatedly breaching court order that youth can be subject to a custodial disposition but so, 10 10 years is still a lot better than 25 years and in a youth system in a youth facility it's a lot better than in a penitentiary and here i think is the frustration jamie that a lot of people have is a 14 year old I grant you, not always the most mature and may not see the harm in, let's say, a prank they do that goes awry or something else that they think is going to be funny and, you know, it it doesn't work out that way so they get charged with something. But every 14-year-old surely knows that it's not okay to stab someone. And so when you look at the the law, when you look at the the youth part of this, yeah, we want to cut some slack to people who do something that's youthful and stupid. But this doesn't seem like it falls into the same category. Well, I don't know that I would agree with the sort of cutting of slack, and I know that that is sort of the popular approach to it. But I think, again, if we really think about somebody who's 14 years old, what the system hopes is that we can grab them at 14, even if they get a 10-year sentence as opposed to a 25-year sentence, we can make a difference in their lives. We can rehabilitate them. We can make them another another productive member of the community as opposed to sending them away for 25 years. So at 14, he's finished his supervision by the justice system at 24. At 18, he's not going to be finished until he's 37, which is really unfortunate. But again, the approach is Let's see if we can help this. We don't know what brought that youth to do what he did. We absolutely have no idea about that. So what we need to do is let's get down to the root of the problem. Let's see if we can fix this as opposed to having someone, even if he served a 25-year sentence, he's going to be 29 when he gets out. So if we put that 14-year-old in an adult institution for 25 years, how is he going to come out of there? I, I don't mean we're trying to prevent, and I don't mean to sound all medieval here. I mean I, I really am not. But is there a, a risk that we run by not making it scary for kids that if there was a true fear of what might happen, that we might have a deterrent effect here, or do we have a deterrent effect nonetheless? I think there's certainly a deterrent effect if the person can be deterred. 
an individual, whether they're youth or adult, if they don't want to be in a custodial facility of any kind, whether it be a youth facility, which granted is uh, certainly a lot better than going into the Hamilton Wentworth Detention Centre, but if that person ends up having their routine confined, having their life confined, having their space confined, they're still going, there's still a a deterrent effect to that. It's not, it's not all candies and roses in a youth facility either. And the people who are going to be rehabilitated are going to be deterred by that. And the people who aren't, they're not going to be deterred by the Hamilton Wentworth Detention Center either because their approach to their life is already askew. Just before I let you go, who who makes the call? It's the Crown Attorney who would make the call whether to try and charge or to try this person as an adult? They would make the application and a judge would have to grant it. And how often does that ever happen? In my 14 years, I haven't seen it yet in Hamilton, but I'm sure there have been cases. And uh, I guess we'll see what happens with this one. And last thing, if it were to happen, and we don't have any evidence or any suggestion that it's going to, but if someone was to make that application and a judge okayed it, do all the rules around being an adult change? Does the name then get released? Does everything get treated as if the person was an adult? If they're tried as an adult, the rules as an adult apply. As I say, we don't have any evidence or any suggestion that's going to happen yet, although I can tell you there's a lot of people who are saying it should be, um, whether it should or shouldn't, we'll we'll find out soon enough. Uh, Jamie Stevenson, always love having you on here. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks so much, Scott. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You may be aware that we have a national broadcaster in this country. You're familiar, right? You watch Hockey Night in Canada on there sometimes. Well, if you have been following in the election or other times, you'll know that there are people who suggest that there is not always objectivity there. Whether you agree or whether you disagree, there are those who say that the CBC supports the Liberal Party. It is a common view on social media. Again, you can agree, you can disagree. They, however, would argue that they are fully objective as the national broadcaster and they are walking right up the middle. Uh, Well, uh, an incident that happened in the last few days has challenged that and created a bit of a firestorm. And I want to talk about it because a number of short clips from the CBC, from various shows that uh, that they did, political shows, were used in a campaign, an online campaign ad by the Conservative Party. The CBC responded to this by suing the party for copyright violations and the moral rights of the journalists who was involved or who were involved. Now, you have an issue here that's a political issue and you have a legal issue. The political issue is the Conservatives and Andrew Scheer have at times said that he would consider defunding the CBC. The Liberals have said, we want to give millions more to the CBC. This has created the political view or the political looks like to some people like the CBC is playing favorites. How do you sue a party in the middle of an election campaign? It doesn't look good. But my next guest wrote a piece uh, in the Globe the other day. CBC's lawsuit against the Conservatives reveals a broadcaster lost in the digital world. This is the legal side of things. Michael Geist is a lawyer. He's a law professor at the University of Ottawa. He is the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law, and he's someone we love having on the show. Michael, thanks for doing this today. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, I want to dive into this a bit, but let's let's start sort of at a bit of a surface level, uh, because as taxpayers, and I've heard other people say this, and you've alluded to it, as taxpayers, you and I technically, I guess, really own the CBC. And so I'm wondering if should the material that they produce then be copyrighted or should be free to use for all Canadians? Well, I think actually in some ways you just asked two questions about their content. Should it be copyrighted and 
should it be used by Canadians? And I think the answer actually is different in both to those two questions. I think the question as to whether or not the CBC holds copyright in the works, I think the answer is yes. I mean, they're, they're like any other creator, and regardless of who happens to own the CBC or fund the CBC, I think they hold the copyright. The question of, of what they ought to do with that copyright, in terms of whether or not they make the works more readily and openly available for Canadians to use, I think is a, is a separate question. I think is a really good one, because I do think that there is a role for the public broadcaster funded by the public to play in making its work more openly and readily available for the public to use and reuse in a way that we might not see take place from private broadcasters. And could you, when you say that, do you even mean necessarily on other broadcast networks, so CTV or Global or whomever could maybe use it? Is that the idea you're having? Potentially. I mean, I think and I think we could suss out a number of different possibilities. I mean, one might simply be to say that it can be used for non-commercial purposes by others. And in fact, we've seen the government, liberal government, think a little bit along those lines where there would be the possibility of using CBC content for non-commercial purposes. So a, broad, a competing broadcaster might not be able to use full portions of CBC for those purposes, but others who want to engage in their own expressive behavior or other non-commercial activities, they might be able to make use of it. But in some ways, that's that's sort of the secondary issue, because the first issue, especially made, I think, highlighted by the CBC's lawsuit, is CBC doesn't seem to be going in that direction at all. If anything, they're one of the most aggressive organizations in trying to cut down on the uses of their works. And in this particular case, I think uh, trying to stop uses that are legitimate, irrespective of your view of what the CBC ought to be doing with its copyrighted material. Just before I dive into what you just said, because it's really important, I, I want to ask one more thing about the other, and that is, don't we already have a situation in this country where different broadcasters or other media can use clips from other ones? We see highlights all the time of things that some media may have, and as long as they give credit, is is it not fair use to be able to use short clips as long as you identify where you got it from? Right. Well, that's that goes to the heart of, I think, this case, because the CBC has effectively tried to claim that these seven clips that were used by the Conservatives, both either in an online ad or in some Twitter postings, uh, somehow were, is there copyright and that Cannot, that it could, could, that it was infringement for it to be used otherwise. And in fact, I think you're right that not just broadcasters, anyone can use copyrighted materials uh, if the portion that they use is a smaller portion or a reasonable portion, and that they meet the various factors that the courts have outlined for what qualifies in Canada as fair dealing, which would be the equivalent of fair use. And in this case, the, some of the clips don't even rise to that level. They are so short that the ability to even sue on them, I think, is open to question. For the, those that are longer, I think there is a very strong fair dealing argument. So uh, let's go to one particular thing that everybody remembers, 9-11. Th- uh, I mean, everyone remembers where they were and what they were watching. When people show clips from that, if there had been, you know, early on in 9-11, there were just a few New York helicopters that were flying around before the whole thing went completely berserk. And I know that people have used some of those clips and they identify it. So that, that is fair use because it's what, news value and you're not using too long? Or, or what would be the ruling behind something like that? Sure. So, I mean, there's, so there's a number of factors. And I think we should start by noting that the U.S. rules for fair use are not the same as the Canadian rules for fair dealing. They're similar, but they're not identical. And one of the factors that we often look at is that there is a requirement for attribution. So 
if you're using something under fair dealing or under fair use, you're going to attribute who the original creator was. In Canada, we've got a number of exceptions that are out there. One is, the, is that fair dealing exception. There's actually another that can come into play here, and that's a specific exception for non-commercial user-generated content, essentially creating a clear permission to be able to use works if you're remixing or bringing together other copyrighted works to create something of your own, which in for, especially for non-commercial purposes would qualify. If you're engaged in the commercial side, it may be that you seek permission, or it may be, depending on the clip that you're using and why you're using it, that it qualifies in the U.S. for fair use or in Canada for fair dealing. So if I'm making it, if I'm just someone at home making a YouTube video and I want to grab a snippet off CBC or CTV or Global, can I do that then? Is that fair dealing? You can actually in Canada, I'd go further. I'd argue that if you're doing it for your own non-commercial purposes, you can rely on the user-generated content exception, and you can use it without even regard for whether or not it's fair or would qualify as fair dealing. Even if I post it on YouTube, which is a public area? Sure. If you're do- Well, certainly, if you're doing it for non-commercial purposes, so you're not profiting off it, you're doing it for your own expressive purposes, then that's certainly permitted. So if, for example, you were interested in the current campaign and you wanted to pull together a series of clips of either your favorite leader or your favorite leader that you don't love, or your most hated leader, whatever it happens to be, and you're trying to make some comment about that and creating your own new work using some of these different clips, that, I believe, would be protected under the non-commercial user-generated content provision. It might well also be protected under fair dealing. It's a user's right, and so you might be able to use it for those purposes. And I should go even further, there's also the possibility that if the clips were very short, a few seconds out of, uh, let's say, an hour-long speech, that that's not even a substantial part of the work, and you're permitted to use it because it's viewed as insubstantial, and therefore doesn't even rise to the level of a potential infringement. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking with Michael Geist, who's the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law about the CBC lawsuit against the Conservative Party. And Michael, just before the break, I said, with all you've just described, I don't really understand how this becomes A, a lawsuit, and B, a company like the CBC that's got to have just a an army of lawyers sees something here that would make them decide they want to sue, especially in the middle of an election. Uh, yes, <laughs> I, I must admit uh, the the lawsuit is incredibly puzzling on several levels. From a legal perspective, I don't think it's a very strong case. I think it's a it's a very weak case, in fact. Which, um, as we've been talking about, I think uh, the Conservative Party would be in a strong position to rebut those claims as it makes its way through the court process. I think the timing of this is positively bizarre because, in fact, the Conservatives removed the the the, the video that was at issue. And so all of this is the CBC was looking for was a declaration or an injunction from the court stopping them from doing it again. But that, with a week before the election, uh, when they launched this, they could have easily just waited until after the campaign to ask for the same thing. So there was really no reason to have jumped in with this when they did. And then, of course, strategically to have included two prominent CBC journalists who are part of the lawsuit course, raises media questions about uh, impartiality, uh, questions as to whether or not they actually were even aware of the lawsuit when they were brought into it. It is 
I think, a bizarre approach on multiple levels. Well, and by doing it now, and, and I mean, you're a lawyer, not a, you're not, I don't, as far as I know, you're not a politician, but n- maybe someday down the road. Um, but by doing it now, you inevitably turn it from being a legal story into a political story. You can't help but that it not be a political story in the middle of an election campaign for the national broadcaster to sue one of the parties. Yeah, I think that's right. The Conservative Party started fundraising off it almost immediately. And I think a lot of people recognized very quickly that this this really did raise consequential issues with respect to the coverage CBC would have of the election uh, and fuels, of course, the perception that some have about impartiality of the broadcaster. Well, especially when one party has talked about defunding and one party has talked about throwing hundreds of millions more into the pile, it's probably not the wisest thing to, as you say, add fuel to that fire. No, I think strategically it's uh, a significant blunder. And all of this in, in uh, in a legal case that is just really, really weak. And so... It's one thing if they had a slam dunk from a legal perspective and say, you know, politics be damned, I'm launching this case. But that's not the case here. It's, I think, one that most legal observers would say the case is very, very weak. And so it's really hard to understand both from the perspective of a weak legal case from the politics of the matter, and then even just from the pure timing of it just doesn't make any sense. Well, and you mentioned the, the, the journalists who have been named in this, and it's what they've done also is muddled this up so we don't really know if the journalists knew that they were being named as plaintiffs or didn't know if they were being named as plaintiffs, which, uh, can, you, can you sue someone without knowing it in Canada? Well, I mean, in this case, of course, they're employees of the broadcaster. So it may be that part of their agreement is that the broadcaster has the rights to launch those launch a case in that circumstance. It's, I, I think it, it's, it's difficult to understand either way. Either if they were involved in the case, why would they have agreed to it? Because I think it does raise those these questions. Uh, if they weren't involved, the idea that the CBC would file a complaint in this way is quite shocking. Either way, I think there's a need to clear the air. And given that they've said that they're going to go to the court to ask that the journalists be removed from the case, I suspect that the legal documents, once they get filed, should go some way to explaining what's been taking place. One of the things, or when they're part of this, is it says that they're suing because their moral rights have been violated. Rosemary Barton and another journalist. What does that even mean? Right. Well, I mean, that's presumably why they were included, because... We have both economic rights under the Copyright Act as well as moral rights. Moral rights sort of go to the integrity of the individual. The classic example that's raised is from a case years ago where at the Eaton Center in Toronto there was a sculpture involving Canada geese and the the mall decided to put Christmas red scarves around their necks. The artist objected. And so it wasn't so much the economics of it, it was that this undermined the artistic integrity. The moral rights claim here is very weak as well. I mean, the case of Rosemary Barton, for example, she actually doesn't speak in the clip. The person speaking in the clip in which she appears is the columnist Andrew Coyne. It's part of the, from the ad issue. Program. So she's just there. She just is there alongside Chantal Bear. So she's actually not even speaking in the in that particular case. It's hard to know what the moral rights claim would be of just having someone's face on the clip. Right, if I had a clip even speaking. If I had a clip of Rosemary Barton saying something and it was clipped and snipped and edited to take totally out of context and say the opposite, I could understand then saying that's not 
right and that may be violating my moral rights because now you're saying something in my mouth I'm not saying, but this is something completely different. Yeah, I think that's right. And in fact, if you, the, the video, of course, hasn't disappeared. Instead, we've had what's sometimes referred to as the Streisand effect, where in fact more people have, I think, seen this ad than ever would have been the <laughs> Probably. case otherwise. And in fact, when you see the clip, it's really hard to see why the CBC thought this was a problem. All it has, um, for this particular segment anyway, with Rosemary Barton, is Andrew Coyne saying something that he said many times on that program, many times in print, and frankly didn't take him out of context at all. Uh, well, I can tell you one thing it did, and we got to run. I'll tell you one thing it did. Over the weekend, the hashtag DefundTheCBC was tweet, it was trending on Twitter, whether that helps them or hurts them. Um, I can't see how it helps, but anyway, you you've, you pointed out, go to uh, michaelgeist.ca. There's lots of stuff there, including uh, CBC versus the Canadian Progressive Conservatives, why the CBC's attempt to use copyright to stifle expression backfired badly. It's a great piece. There's a lot of great pieces there. Michael, thanks for the time today. Appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It is truly a baffling one. Don't really understand what our national broadcaster is doing or why they would make themselves look like the thing that a lot of the people who complain about them believe they already are. Doesn't make sense to me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Back in 19, late 1970s, as a boy, there were a few TV shows that were must-see TV This was among them. This was one of my favorites, The Incredible Hulk with Bill Bixby as David Banner, physicist, scientist, who got the gamma rays into him. And when he got angry, well, when he got angry, he turned into my next guest. Lou Ferrigno is going to be here at the Warplane Heritage Museum this weekend for Hamilton Comic-Con. I am thrilled to have Lou Ferrigno on the show tonight. Lou, thanks for doing this. You're very welcome. You can tell I'm not angry right now. <laughs> well, now, Lou, I, I did want to say this. We may have to do some work here to make you a little more popular in Hamilton because people may not know that once upon a time you were a member of the very much hated Toronto Argonauts. Yes. How did you yeah. end up as a member of the Argonauts? Well, what happened, though, I, uh, at the time, my father was pushing me. He wanted me to be a pro football player, so... I tried out for the New York Jets, and apparently they felt I should come to Canada to play for a short time for the Argonauts to play on the team to gain the experience. And I remember when I came to Toronto, and I played two inter-squad games. I had a great time, but I realized the football wasn't for me, but I made a lot of good friends up there. And uh, But, you know, football, Canadian football, is much tougher than NFL because you had three downs instead of four. And I had a scrimmage every day on after turf. So I learned a lot, but I was very happy I didn't get injured uh, at all. How much football background did you have before you came here? Because you say your dad was pushing you to do it. Did you have much football background? Zero, because I, I won a lot of competition, <laughs> like the superstar competition. So they felt because of my speed and agility, I could be a great football player. But I, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't. Uh, that wasn't my passion. So I gave it a shot. But but basically, you know, you got to play since you were young. But I've never been a big fan of uh, playing pro, pro football. What position did they have you trying out for? Offensive lineman, right of uh, right of center. Wow. Uh, now, I, I read a story, and I don't know if it's true, Lou, but it was that after, in one of the inter-squad games, there was a bit of an incident where you broke someone's leg or someone's legs and decided that was it, that wasn't your thing. Was that true? It's true because what happened there, I was so nervous, I didn't want to get knocked down. So when, they, when, the, when the, the quarterback yelled, hike, I went straight forward. I just charged. I, I just I, I gave all my strength, everything, and the guy just hit the ground and broke 
both legs. Oh, man. Well, I saw a picture today as I was getting ready to talk to you. I saw a picture of you from your time up here in Toronto. It was during, I guess, training camp. And, I mean, everybody in football has gotten bigger since the 1970s when you tried out. Oh, sure. But, man, back then, you you were huge. <laughs> you were an enormous man compared to these people. Well, I, I was fast. I was able to run to 40 yards and 4.6. I mean, I, I weighed like 200, 280 pounds. And, uh, you know, there were guys like Wally Hardsmith, like Anthony Davis uh, with the quarterback. I mean, I really had a great time being up there, but I wasn't into the football, but I had a great time with the, with the team. And the coach at the time, his name was Andrew, Andrew Jackson. Well, there you go. So you, you were coached by an American president. Yes, I went to the first one. I said, listen, I would like hitting people. He said, get out of here, go home, go back to bodyboard. I said, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> well, you, you were already clearly well into bodybuilding by the time you came up here. Yes, I had a father because I did, uh, I, I did well in the superstars. He kind of forced me into it because I was trying to please my father, but I realized that I had to focus on myself. So I had a love and hate relationship with my father. But, but the overall good news is the fact that I gave it a, my best shot and yep. I learned a lot. Was by the way back then was there any was there big money in bodybuilding at that time even though it was a big it was a growing sport or were you doing this partially because it was a way to make some good money? No, that's a good question because at the time first prize was only seven hundred fifty dollars for Miss Olympia competition. Seven hundred and fifty. Wow. Dollars. Yes. Wow. Now two hundred thousand. But uh, football, there was more money in football. That's why. Um, I figured maybe give a shot in football and make some money, but uh, just, you know, it's back different. But today, uh, it's uh, much more lucrative to be involved in bodybuilding compared to in the 70s. Absolutely. Well, and, and you know why? I mean, you were part of the reason why it's more lucrative now. I mean, you were the guy who blazed that trail for you and Arnold Schwarzenegger and a bunch of others. You're the reason it's now making that money. We put it on the map. I mean, it's still the two of us today, if it wasn't for us, I mean, pumping iron, bodybuilding will be where it is today because that's where we started from. We had nothing. Uh, the, and by the way, you, you talk about pumping iron, the movie, not just doing pumping iron, not just the verb. Um, it, it's been a while since I've seen it. I saw the movie a, a couple times a number of years ago. My recollection is that at that time you had a complicated, let's say, complicated relationship with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Is that a fair way to describe it? It was more like simply rival. Okay. Because, uh, because I wanted to defeat him. He was like six, six years older than me, so of course... I uh, won Miss America, Miss Universe, and I just really wanted to, be, uh, to win the Olympia. So there was a lot of competition between us. Do you have a relationship with him today? Oh, yeah. We're friends now. Yeah, definitely. I have a lot of respect to him. That movie, um, w- would it be a fair guess to say that that movie is why we know about you? Because I, I got to believe that if not for that movie, probably you don't get the role that everybody is familiar with you for, for with the Hulk. You, that, that had to lead to that, right? Yeah, because you got to remember the movie, everybody had a personality. So uh, that's what made it different. And then they had a casting call one time. They were looking for the largest body that they can find with the ability to act. So because when I came to the table, I showed Panama, that means acting without speaking, which was natural for me. And then it was the perfect time and place. And then I went from bodybuilding to show business in 24 hours. Oh, wow. Well, that's fo- I can't believe this, Lou, but that's 42 years ago that you got that role. And yep. I'm and I'm guessing though that even today, that's what everybody knows Lou Ferrigno for, right? You've done a lot of other things, but that's what they know you for still. 
Well, I've done five TV series and over 40 films. I could do 10 Gone with the Wind movies uh, tomorrow, but everybody's still left at home. <laughs> is, is that okay with you? Is it okay that yeah. that's what they know you for? Yes, because it's the most famous, iconic character all over the world. I mean, I mean, billions of people know the Hulk, not just millions. So that would be with me until I passed on. So I'm very proud of it because it was a launching pad for me to get into show business. And I, I just love the character. Everybody loves the Hulk. You said in 24 hours you went from bodybuilding to acting. How did you get the role? Well, the casting agent called me. I went down for the screen test, and I wanted to, uh, to win the audition. I remember when I went for the screen test. At the time, they were shooting the pilot with another actor named Richard Keel, who plays George and James Bond. Yes. And they realized that he didn't fit the part, so they were looking for somebody that matches the Hulk, the physique. So I went for the screen test. It was, it was perfect timing because no one was built like me, and I was perfect uh, I did the audition, I did the, you know, the running scenes, I did the emotional scenes, everything. And then I, I wanted to win, win the audition, so I won the audition, and the next day we reshot we, we the entire pilot. So, so Jaws, from just the seven-foot-tall guy, Richard Keel from, from James Bond, he could have been the Incredible Hulk if they decided that was where they wanted to go. Yes, but he wow. didn't look the part. I mean, I mean even if, one, time, one time a director came on the set with his son, the boy said to his father, Hey, Dad, this is not the Hulk. He doesn't look like the Hulk because Richard Keel is a big guy. But he didn't, he didn't have the physique to match like in the comic books. So were there other bodybuilders who were trying out, or was it just you and you did enough that you got it right away? No, they did, they did a nationwide uh, casting call, but then uh, they realized when I went to the audition, I mean, I was perfect for the part. How much had the world of bodybuilding, when you were competing for that, how much had it helped that you'd been in those competitions and you'd dealt with that kind of pressure of, trying to compete with someone for your, the best body? Well, it, it taught me the discipline and the motivation and determination. So when I went in for the screen test, you got to remember at the time, uh, I, was, I was probably the biggest, I'm still uh, the biggest guy in the sport, but I, just, I was very gifted with good uh, genetic, good athletic ability. That I'm very flexible. I could run fast. I'm not, I, wasn't a, I, didn't, I was not a muscle-bound guy. I was very uh, agile. So all of that contributed to uh, getting the part. Lou, I wanted to ask you about something, and it's not probably the most upbeat part of what I wanted to talk to you about, but it sort of talks about how you got into the sport. We've just had a terrible week in this city with a story of a young boy, a 14-year-old boy who was bullied, we're told, at school and ended up being killed at school by someone else. You were bullied as a young boy, right? That, that's how you got into bodybuilding? Yes, I was bullied a lot because of my hearing issue, my speech issue. And that's why I do a lot of speaking about bullying because a lot of times it's not the victim, but the bully themselves that has the problem. Because sometimes if you don't talk about it, report it to someone, it could be life-threatening. So, I mean, I don't know if you like talking about it or not, but like, how did they bully you? What did they say or what did they do to you back then? Well, you know, because of my hearing and my speech when I was young, they're kind of like uh, guys, you know, bigger than me, kind of pushed me around, try to control me, manipulate me because they felt like they had the advantage on me. And I was afraid to tell anyone because uh, I was afraid that people would think that I'm 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 crazy, but not them. So basically, when I got into bodybuilding, then the more I built uh, my body, I, I gave me more of that self confidence, and I was able to deal with the bullying. That's why if you watch the Incredible Hulk TV series, Bill Bixby is a perfect commercial for being bullied. I mean, bully, Bill Bixby's bullied every episode, and look what happened. Yeah. So when you got into bodybuilding, was it simply to feel better about yourself or was the idea that I'm going to get bigger and stronger to defend myself against those guys? 
Well, I got a lot, had a lot of anger when I was young. It helped me get rid of all my anger and my demons inside of me because it helped me to express in the gym, the young and lifting the heavy weights, competing with myself. And I want to have confidence that when people look at me, I want to be respected for my physique and my personality and my persona, not just as, look at the, as a handicapped kid. So I overcame that adversely with bodybuilding my passion, and I changed my whole uh genre about myself if I was a speech and if I was a hearing because for 50 years ago my speech was not very understandable so I've learned to maximize my own personal power. Did you once you got to be the bodybuilder you were did did you love being that size or was it part of the job that you had to stay that way or did you love being gigantic Lou Ferrigno? Oh I love being that size because the fact that I worked so hard to achieve that size and no one Back then, it was kind of unique because if I go to a discotheque trying to meet girls, they were very intimidated because myself, <laughs> I don't see myself being that big. So it was very intimidating in many ways. But today, I mean, it's nothing because there's so many big guys. But back then, I enjoyed it because I felt very protected, very secure about myself. I mean, it's. I, I imagine I, I'm. I'm not your size, by the way. Just, <laughs> just in case you're wondering, it's got to be a ton of work, like it, to try and stay there. How much work would it have taken to try and stay there? You couldn't have done anything else other than bodybuild, right? Oh, sure, because there's a lot of dedication, the dieting, the training, the posing, the training. So you have to, you know, and then your social life is small because when you train for competition, you have to really love pain, and to be a champion, you have to be the best you can be with yourself. Would you would you go back? Would you be that size again today if you could? Well, I mean, if I had to, I'm just saying for a, for a number of reasons. It's different today because I'm 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 67, but yeah. back then, I mean, I achieved what I wanted to achieve. I had no desire to be that big again because the fact that there's, there's no need to because I'm an actor now. But if you put me 37 years ago, then it was very beneficial because I played Hercules at the other roles. Well, and that said, uh, just in case anyone hasn't seen a picture of you lately, Lou, I mean, it's not like you've exactly let yourself go. You still look pretty darn good. Well, I'm 255. Nobody on the planet looks good as I do. I spent <laughs> a week. Oh, yeah. I'm still, still ripped. I still got the, the gun. Well, you, you kind of have to because you do a number of these Comic-Con events like this one coming up in Hamilton, and I'm guessing that when people pose for a picture with you, they want you flex. I mean, you can't be fat, flabby Lou Ferrigno. you got to be the Hulk when you pose for those pictures, right? That's what people want. Oh, I don't mind. They want me to do the Hulk pose. I'd be happy to do it for them because that's, that's like respect to me because how much they love the character. The new things that's happening with me is a lot of people now have my signature and the Hulk tattoo in their body parts. So they, they, that, that's what I enjoy the most because it's all about respect. Should I even ask what's the weirdest body part you've signed? I would say that uh, the woman, one time she came to me, she asked me to sign both her calves. She had a tattoo. Then she came back a year later. She said, I have your signature tattoo of both my calves. And the husband was staring at me like he hated me. Because <laughs> he wakes up in bed. You got to look at my signature on her calf muscle. I must admit, when you said she asked me to sign both her, and then you didn't, before you got there, I wasn't sure where you were going to go with that. So calves was a nice, safe I, answer. I, 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 thought, I thought it was a joke. But she came back <laughs> with a tattoo on both calf muscles, the both legs. We only have a couple of minutes left, but we're talking about just how you're you're still in great shape, and you really are. I've seen pictures. What do people say when you walk into the gym and start working out? It's got to be hugely intimidating when Lou Ferrigno comes into the gym to start working out. Well, they get excited because they want to take a selfie. Also, they have a lot of respect because they know where I've come from, and the fact that they feel motivated because 
what I've done in my life after 55 years of training, they feel like they have someplace, some way to achieve with their body. And so, so they come to me for advice and they want to take pictures. It's all about that respect because when I was a kid, I didn't have that. What about back in the day when you were at your absolute peak of bodybuilding and you would walk into a gym, what was the response like? It was the same, but you got to remember back then it wasn't a general public. It was mostly just the bodybuilders, the guys. Out. It was the, the series of bodybuilders because today we have the public, like men, women, and young kids. And because uh, of the Hulk, everybody knows. But back then it was just nobody in the street and the public didn't know who I was. Only the people in the gym itself, till events, till I was exposed. Uh, you know, when I won the Mr. Universe competition, when I, when I received the social media, then that added more to the public. Well, it is, uh, oh, I got to ask you one more thing. Do you like, uh, there's been, since you have hung up the green paint and the, uh, I, by the way, I, I learned today that that wig that you wore, apparently it was made of yak fur. That's, that's unusual. Well, the hair from a Chinese mule called yak, they dyed it green because they wanted <laughs> something that's very hard and brittle. Yeah. Very uncomfortable. Uh, that, the eyes, the teeth, five uh, coats of makeup on the body, that. So it took like three and a half hours. Wow. The hardest thing for me is I had to endure and sustain the makeup 12 to 14 hours a day. They had to retouch me all day long. I don't know where I got the patience from. I'm glad I've done it. Do you like, though, since you've hung up the green paint, there's been, I don't know how many movies with the Hulk, all CGI now. It's stuff that's made up. Do, do you like the way the Hulk is portrayed in movies today, or do you look at it and go, nah, mine was better? Well, you got to remember CGI. You can't compete with the human Hulk. The CGI can't sign autographs and take pictures. <laughs> so Touche. I, 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 like, I know, with, but the original, uh, it's a nail in the coffin. It's done. There'll never be another one like it. And it go off because it, it would go down in history like the original Twilight Zone, like Star Trek with William Shatner. It's just an iconic TV series. And it had, every episode had a laser compelling message about life. And that's the beauty about it. It was, it was, it was a beautiful show. Well, I, I agree with you that it can't compete with the real Hulk. That was, uh, that was for many people listening and for myself, that was part of our childhood and part of our growing up. And uh, listen, it's a real treat to talk with you. Uh, Lou Ferrigno is going to be at the Warplane Heritage Museum this weekend for the Hamilton Comic Con. You can get a picture. You can get an autograph. Uh, Lou, thank you so much for taking some time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Looking forward to a great show this weekend. Thank you. That is, uh, that is the Hulk. The real Hulk, not the CGI Hulk, the guy whose pecs were real, not computer generated. Much like Ben's and mine. It, you know, when you see Ben and I, Ben's on the other side of the glass right now, if we were to do this show shirtless, both of us, it would look very much like the early days of the Hulk on TV, on CBS. Very much. Not like Lou Ferrigno, mind you. It would have been more like Bill Bixby, <laughs> like David Banner. I, no, I didn't want to confuse anyone. The two of us combined, you could not combine our pec muscles and get one of Lou Ferrigno's pec muscles. But nonetheless, we're, you know, there's still time. Dare to dream. Uh, Comic-Con, Hamilton Comic-Con, this weekend, Saturday and Sunday at the Warplane Heritage Museum. You can find it online. And by the way, tomorrow evening, here on the show, same time, 7.10, come back. Got someone else who is going to be at Comic-Con. You're going to want to be here for tomorrow evening to hear who we're going to be chatting with. If you grew up... In the 70s, into the 80s, absolutely do not not be here tomorrow evening at 710. I'm, I'm not going to tell you who yet, but you're going to want to be here. I'm, I'll promise you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Today was XFL Draft Day. XFL Draft Day. Yes, the 
return of the XFL. You will remember a number of years ago, this was the football league started by Vince McMahon of World Wrestling Entertainment fame. And the first time around, the XFL did not last, but it did make a um, a bit of a splash, whether it was the no coin toss to open the game. They had a sprint to grab the ball, and whoever got it got to get the ball first. And the first time they ever did it, the guy dislocated his shoulder diving for it. That was unique. Uh, the cheerleaders who were at the games between shifts at the brass rail, that was unique, uh, if you catch my drift. Uh, a bunch of other things. Well, the XFL is back. Draft was today. Real names attached to it now. Is it going to work? Is it going to affect the CFL? These questions and more. Sounds like a 70s TV show, which is only appropriate after the last segment. These questions and more will be answered by Rick Zamperin, who joins us now. Rick, how are you? Hey, Scott. Good. How are you? I am well. Did you ever watch The Incredible Hulk when you were a kid? I did. One of my favorite programs. And a, a, a logo or a mantra that you have taken into your journalism and broadcasting world. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. <laughs> yes. Everybody my, knows that about Rick. Motto. Yeah, everyone knows that about Rick. Don't make Rick angry. You will not like him when he gets angry. Um, although I've never actually seen you angry. So, you know, I'm waiting though. You, do you turn green? Uh, a, turn a, red. a lighter shade than Lou mm. yes. used to. So the XFL gets its draft going today. Is this something the CFL should be at all concerned about? Uh, on the surface, I would say no, uh, because, well, there, there's a number of reasons. Number one, we just don't know, considering what we just saw in the spring with the AAF, how viable this XFL is going to be. Uh, very similar in terms of the number of teams uh, in comparison to what the AAF had. Uh, somewhat similar in terms of how the rosters were compiled, uh, in terms of, you know, numbers and stuff like that. Um, the only difference being, I think, is the owner of the XFL, Vince McMahon of WWE fame, has a ton of money, uh, and he's already gone through this once before. Now, that doesn't guarantee that it's going to be successful this time around, but I would think, and you just listed some of the, <laughs> you know, the quirks of XFL 1.0, uh, and, and how that quickly, uh, you know, fell apart after one year. Uh, I think maybe they have learned uh, a few lessons along the way and, and hopefully we'll squeeze a couple more years out of this incarnation. Well, I mean, okay, so the one, the first obvious reason why you would say, okay, the CFL is not going to be affected by this is the timing because this league is going to start the Sunday after the Super Bowl and go till the end of April. So there's no overlap with the CFL. So that's the obvious first one where the CFL looks at this, I would guess, and goes, yeah, it's got nothing to do with us. Right. And that's a great point because, you know, that's the time of the year where CFL players, you know, we're talking February, are signing contracts with their respective CFL teams. So if you're a free agent come next February in the CFL, you will, yeah, look at the XFL to say, okay, is there any roster spots? Do I fit in there? Does the money make sense? Am I going to be closer to home? All these questions these players are going to have to ask themselves. Uh, of course, they're going to have their CFL teams in their ear. They're going to have their agents in their ear to kind of guide them uh, in, you know, on a certain path. But at the, at the end of the day, you know, these careers, you know, pro football careers are so short. There's only so many, you know, George Blandas or, or Tom Brady's of today's, you know, generation. There's only so many guys that can play, you know, 10, 15 plus years. Uh, if you're in the CFL or certainly going for a spot in the XFL, you know, one of those upper echelon guys who's looking at a 15 year plus pro football career, 
So you're thinking, how can I squeeze as much money out of this short career as possible? And if you look at the XFL, the average salary in the XFL is going to be $55,000 American, which is about $48,000, $49,000 Canadian. Uh, the minimum salary in the CFL is $65,000 Canadian. Uh, but still, you're looking at a, um, uh, a different country, a whole different game. So XFLers or wannabe XFLers are going to look at that scenario as well. Yeah, I can stay at home. I can be seen by more people. I mean, I, yeah. look, I don't know what impact, if any, this is going to have on CFL players, but I heard someone today say, well, they're playing from mid-January, early February through to April, so they could play in this, and then they could come down and play in the CFL. And I was like, wait a second. We're already hearing players complain that the 18-game season plus playoffs is a lot on the body, and I have no doubt that it is. Now you're going to add 10 games plus maybe two playoff games. You're going to play 20, you're going to play 30 games in a season as a pro football player. You'll be dead by the end of the year. Yeah. And the other thing with CFL contracts is if you're signed with a team, you're signed basically for, you know, a season plus, whatever the, you know, the terms of the contract is. So you can't sign a CFL slash NFL deal. And I'm, I'm certain you can't sign a slash, you know, a CFL slash XFL deal. I think that's going to be, you know, the same. Uh, you know, ingredients in that in that equation, no different than, you know, a CFL player trying to sign on with the AAF. You have to choose between one or the other. If you're trying to get to the NFL, you can sign with an XFL team and then hope to play in the NFL later on that year when, you know, August and September rolls around. But I, I don't think you'll be eligible to come to the Canadian Football League. And that, if anything, again, the leagues don't, the seasons don't overlap, but that, if anything, to me is going to be the question because I'm looking at the, the names of the players and you were looking at it, I know, earlier today, the, the, the draft list from the XFL today, and they drafted a buttload of guys. I mean, there's a yeah. ton of players who are drafted here. Uh, I don't recognize all these names. And yet that kind of, to me, is the concern because many of the guys drafted into the CFL, I'm not familiar with. These are not the, superstars of superstars from college football, because those are the guys the NFL is going to look at. Exactly. And, and you know, strangely enough, today the commissioner of the XFL uh, is banking on the, oh, I remember that guy kind of reaction when fans look, you know, tune in to watch an XFL game or, or go to a stadium to watch an XFL game. It's like, oh, yeah, I remember, you know, such and such played with Oklahoma or Alabama or, uh, you know, LSU, whatever the case is. And and hopefully, from their standpoint, become a fan of that team or that player or, or whatever the case is. Uh, I think I think it's a tough sell. Certainly in year one, this is going to be you know a slow roll. There's there's no way that they're going to be selling out stadiums uh, in the first few games or the first uh, first season. No, but I, and you're right. And yet I look at this. So the first overall draft pick, uh, if I'm reading this right, the first overall draft pick was a wide receiver from James Madison named Richard Davis. Now, I don't know how many people know Richard Davis. Uh, I'm not all that familiar with his work. And yet, to me, that is the kind of concern that you have because the CFL teams aren't drafting the guys who are going to be taken by the NFL. They're looking for that next echelon down they can bring up here as skill players. And, you know, James Madison is one of those universities, one of those smaller places, and you go, that's that's a CFL kind of pick, it sounds like, that a guy who might have been dragged up here. And as you start going through this, I wonder how many of the guys who are on these lists are guys the CFL teams have also had on their lists. And then you say, okay, so which one are they going to choose? 
Yeah, and, and the way it works in the CFL, too, is, I mean, CFL teams don't draft American players. They place them on their negotiation list, or neg list for short. So, you know, Johnny Manziel is a great example. Here's a guy who's drafted in the NFL, highly touted quarterback. Uh, in, in the, the Tiger Cats put him on their negotiation list, even when he was back, uh, you know, playing in the NCAA, uh, f- with the one day of hoping that maybe he might come to the CFL. And lo and behold, it happened. Um, and, and I would guarantee you a lot of these guys who are drafted today and, and this XFL draft continues tomorrow as well. A lot of these guys are going to be on CFL negotiation list. So yep. there's going to be a little bit of a ripple effect for those player personnel directors or, uh, you know, gurus in the CFL to say, okay, we got to cross this guy off our list and go for somebody else in the NCAA. And where this becomes an issue, and I agree with you that, you know, who knows what this league is going to be, but if somehow it can survive and go against all the odds of all the other leagues, if it can somehow survive, that's when you end in the difficulty potentially for the CFL because now you have options for players and they can start playing one league off the other to get more money. And you have a salary cap in the CFL and it's not a huge salary cap and suddenly a guy says, no, I want 100000 to come as a rookie and you go, ah, I'm sorry, we can't do that. that. That's when you may start seeing some of the problems. Yeah, the, the longer this league goes, I think the bigger the problem obviously it is for the CFL because, it, you know, the longer it goes, that means uh, the play is working in terms of the talent on the field. The fans have grabbed onto it. Maybe some sponsors have latched onto the product. The league is maybe breaking even or, or making a little bit of money. The longer this thing goes, I think Randy Ambrosi, the CFL executive, will be thinking, okay, now we're in trouble. we got to you know, do something else. Uh, and maybe you know, Ambrosi's CFL 2.0 dream will become a reality by then. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that, yeah, there's going to be some guys that are going to be plucked off of the radar of CFL teams, and at that at this point, that's really the only impact right now. Just have a minute left. I want to ask you about this other story that uh, Mike O'Shea, coach of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, well-known guy from around here, certainly, uh, he says that Zach Caleros is good to go health-wise and uh, could be in to play for the Bombers at any time. I, Rick, am seeing this story and am praying that Zach Caleros does not see the field for Winnipeg because I, this guy, it terrifies me, this guy being back on a football field. I think Mike O'Shea is doing two things. Number one, I think he's truthful in the fact that he believes Zach Caleros is healthy enough to play. Uh, I think how healthy enough is open for debate. But I also think this is just a little message for Chris Traveler to say, hey, if you falter, there's another guy who can come in and not only steal your job, but lead us into a long playoff run, you know, hopefully. Uh, so I think it's twofold. I think he's putting a fire under Strebler and, and, and announcing to the league as well that they have another option. Uh, and I'm with you. If, if Zach gets on the field, let's just hope he is healthy enough and stays healthy to uh, do what he does best. With the concussions he's had, I will be watching him play like I would watch a horror movie, like peering through my fingers yeah. just because like, he's a good guy. He, he, Zach Galeros is a good guy and... You know, it just it's it's scary to think of the number of times he's been walloped back there and had injuries, and you go, man, one more giant hit to the head, and like, what? You want the guy to be a normal human being when he's fifty years old? And the question everything everyone's going to ask themselves, and I'm asking myself this too, is you know, should we expect anything different? I mean, what is going to change between now and the next time he steps on the field? One more hit is going to put him back to where he just was. So. I'm fearful of that for Zach. Yeah, I mean, I, I would. You don't want to tell a guy to retire, but at the same time, it's you want him to be having a happy life as he gets to be a an older person. And uh, anyway, uh, Rick Zamperin, really appreciate the time as always. Thanks for doing this. You got it. Anytime. The Scott Radley Show, weekday evenings from six to eight on nine hundred CHML. 
The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.